You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Well, I want to also encourage you to uh, think about registering for the Foundations course. We kick off next Sunday. We had a great first cohort in um, the fall uh, last year, and we're doing our winter cohort. And so I really want to encourage you, um, if you uh, call Every Nation GTA uh, home, whether you're a leader, a member, a volunteer, just checking us out, uh, we eventually would love everyone um, who calls Every Nation GTA home to go through this course. It's um, not just foundational stuff. Um, of what it means to be a Christian, but also get the ethos of uh, how we uh, see discipleship and following Jesus together here at Every Nation GTA. All right, you're going to hear some more information about how to sign up uh, later, but we're going to jump into our sermon series, Miracles. And so for those of you joining us who don't know who I am, my name is Richard, and welcome to our online service. And we're in part two of a seven-part series called Miracles. And this was the theme for our prayer and fasting and consecration week, which we just ended on Friday. But we're going to continue with this theme throughout uh, the next several weeks in our teaching series. And it's called Miracles. Um, let them be known. And uh, miracles simply are, well, not simply, but they're, they're divine intervention in human affairs. Now, in our Western culture, and particularly in our Western world particularly, we place a lot of weight and emphasis and importance on science and technology and just a very rational way of looking at the world. And in many ways, it's served us incredibly well. You think of all the technological developments that have happened in the last 50 years, even 100 years. It's incredible breakthroughs in various aspects of life that improved the quality of, of many people's lives. But if you and I would be, to be really honest, and looked at the world around us, we can see that there's a limitation to our science and technology and rational way at looking at the world. Certainly the world in its current state testifies that we don't have all the answers, all the solutions to the world's problems. And so um, this series uh, has particular weight in our context because uh, Miracles and the supernatural and the intervention of God in human affairs can sometimes be resisted because it doesn't fit our rational uh, paradigm. And so I want to encourage you, whether you're a seeker, a skeptic, or a follower of Jesus, to really be open in this series to what God may want to uh, intervene in your particular life, perhaps shift some of those paradigms. And so we're looking at particularly seven miracles or as the Gospel of John says, there are signs that Jesus performs that do something. Signs point to something beyond. And actually, at the end of John's Gospel, he tells us exactly his reason, his rationale, his purpose for recording these miracles. And this is what he says. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, did many more miracles than just seven, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, not just a miracle worker, that by believing you may have life in His name. And so that's our hope in this series, that one and all, we would come to greater belief in who Jesus is as the Son of God, the Messiah, the King. And in that belief, in that act of trust, that we would experience the fullness of the life that He came to give us. And so join with me in the second sign, um, the healing of the official son in John chapter 4, uh, verses 46 to 54. And it reads like this. It says, so Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, 
He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, calm down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's quickly pray. And so, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to us what you want us to hear through this story, through this sign recorded in your gospel. And would it not just be something cognitive, but would it shift and change our hearts and lead us to consider living in a different way in light of what you're saying to us. We ask this in your name. Amen. And so there's a very human element to the story, right? We, we get it. If you've ever been in a similar situation as his father, there's a desperate need, and perhaps it's a need you personally have, or like in his instance, it's the need of someone else that's dear to you that you're helpless. You feel helpless to be able to change this situation, but you would give anything and everything to change this desperate situation. And so I think on a human level, just firstly, we, we resonate with this story and, and, and what he's going through. And so just to provide the context here, it's Galilee is the region that Jesus grew up in. Jesus grew up in a town of Nazareth of Galilee. And so he's kind of returning back there after having gone to Jerusalem. We'll get to a little bit of that. And about 15 miles or a day's walk is this town Capernaum where this official is. And so that's just the context of the setting we're in. Now, this official, it doesn't tell us much about this official, except he was a royal official. And so we know that he worked for the Roman government, probably had a high status in society, was probably wealthy, had a lot of resources, said he had servants. And so we know that this person is a very powerful person, whether he was a... Um, um, Gentile or Jewish, the story doesn't tell us that detail, but we know that he's not just that, he's a father. And he has a son that's desperately ill and close to the point of death. And so in this particular story, we see that, but if we pan out a little bit, John's doing something else with this. And I was going to give you that context well, because I think it's really important. So between uh, what we looked at last week, Jesus turning water into wine, John chapter 2, and now John chapter 4, he comes back to the same region where he turned water into wine. He's done a couple of other things. And so particularly in John chapter 3, he has this encounter with a very uh, senior religious uh, teacher, Nicodemus. And he has this encounter with Nicodemus. And then in chapter 4, it says he has an encounter with a, a Samaritan woman. Whenever I say Samaritan woman, I always think of the um, Lenny Kravitz song, American woman, Samaritan woman. Anyway, that's a rabbit trail. We just don't need to go down. I always just hear it in my head and him singing that, Samaritan woman. And so uh, very different. And so we have this wealth, this very prominent Jewish leader, this outcast Samaritan woman that Jesus encounters. And then this third man works for the Roman government, an official working for the Roman government. And I think, not I think, I know John is doing this on purpose. He's wanting us to see the contrast of the different audiences before Jesus. And in essence, what John is saying is the purpose to show that Jesus came for all. He came for all and all have need of him, regardless of whether you're favored in society or forgotten by society. And so I keep that in the back of your mind as we go through the story. But what I would like to focus on in this story 
is to really highlight the, the three kind of progressive tensions or tests, if you will, of faith, of faith that needs to grow and mature that we see in this official, in this brief encounter. And I think it's something of um, all of our stories are really wrapped up in this official story as he encounters Jesus. And so I want to quickly look through that and let it be a way of just uh, you taking stock of your faith, where where your faith is or what your faith is um, as we see the progression and the development of this official's uh, faith. The first is what I call the test of longing, desperation versus apathy. We could ask the question, what would it take to activate your and my faith? What would it take to really engage our faith? Verse 47, listen to the verbs here of the official. I've bolded them here for you on the screen. It says, when the man heard, or not necessarily on the screen, when the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. He hears about Jesus. What he knows about Jesus, we don't know. He obviously knew something about Jesus that activated him to get up, do the day's journey walk, to meet with Jesus and get in front of Jesus and then petition Jesus. And so he's pursuing and petitioning and persisting really with Jesus because Jesus initially doesn't really give him a favorable answer, does he? And so despite his resources, despite his status, despite him maybe going to the Roman government and drawing upon all the resources, he doesn't turn to Herod Antipas at the time. He turns to Jesus. The official knew that his need, his desperation was beyond his control, was beyond his fixing. And so his desperation drove him to do something. And desperation will always drive us to do something, to go somewhere. And the important question is, where do you go or who do you turn to when you have a desperation or a desperate need or a crisis, just like this official? The opposite of desperation or a lack of desperation or a lack of need in our lives, the comfort, comfortable existence and just kind of going along is uh, what we'd say apathy. And apathy is just a lack of concern, a lack of enthusiasm, a lack of action, not into the needs around needs within our lives, but just to the needs in the world around us. And that doesn't activate our faith in any ways. And so so often, um, I've seen it. Sometimes I've seen it in my life for sure. Especially my early years as becoming a Christian, I've seen it in the lives of of many people around me. Is so often we wait for the urgent to activate what I call a crisis faith, right? We wait for that really bad news. We wait for that really desperate situation to then really get on our knees and really cry to God. And you know, God's gracious. Um, that that's a way that God welcomes us to to bring our needs to Him for sure. He, he never dismisses us. But it's such an immature, shallow way of of living of faith. Really, is to only turn to God when the desperation hits. Only turn to Him when the need arises. Only turn to Him when we're facing crisis. We can get ahead of the crisis by cultivating a longing for God, cultivating a dependency upon God. Whether there's a need or crisis imminent in our life or not. And you know what? When that crisis hits, when that need arises, when that desperation really sets in, we're going to be in a far better position to be able to come. We're going to have a far greater sense of confidence that God is with us. God knows how to go about meeting our needs. Um, if you're familiar with John Piper, he's a pastor and author. Uh, he talks a lot about desire and hunger and longing for God. And here's just a, um, a sharp quote he has commenting on the power of 
particularly Western culture, to kind of lull us into apathy as we, cons- you know, towards our relationship with God. He says it like this: the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. And if you're familiar with John Piper's ministry, he has a very harsh kind of pointed ways and sayings like that. And what is he saying? Our danger isn't so much just the radical, the poison. Obviously, we would not go to poison. But it's just the, the mediocrity in between that we just kind of get sucked into in our, in our culture and, and pursuing the Canadian dream, if you will, or whatever it is. And even these good aspirations lull us into an apathy when it comes to our relationship with God and when it comes to the world around us and, and increasingly being apathetic to what we see around us and just the need of people, uh, whether it's physical, tangible needs or just the spiritual darkness and need that grips so much of our nation, our campuses, our cities, and our neighborhoods. It's death by a thousand paper cuts that we've really got to be um, aware of. It's just the slow, just death of a thousand paper cuts that get us dull um, and numb in our relationship with God. And so, Honestly, I never enjoy fasting. The week that we've just had, it's always like, ah, oh, do we have to do this? And whenever I come out of it, I always have the same reflection. Why do I not do this more? And fasting in particular is a great way to cultivate hunger because we in a such a, in a society environment where indulgence is just encouraged. You want it? Go get it. Nothing should be denied you. Materialism and consumerism, and it's really becoming harder and harder to say no. And so cultivating a longing and a hunger for God is so needed in our day and our time. And to push back those deaths by a thousand paper cuts um, that can so easily drain the life out of you and me. And perhaps if you're honest enough, um, maybe you're in a season and recognize an, an apathy uh, a passivity or a settling has crept in to your faith and your relationship with God if you're a follower of Jesus, or not even just with your relationship with God, you become cold or distant or apathetic or overwhelmed by the need around you that we just really don't care anymore. Um, and so I want, I want another quote from a German Catholic theologian to encourage you at what to do with a lack of longing and hunger in your and my life. He says it like this, uh, the soul must long for God in order to be set aflame by God's love. But if the soul cannot yet feel the longing, then it must long for the longing. To long for the longing is also from God. I I found that so encouraging because honestly, as I've reflected, there's been seasons in my life where I've recognized I've not longed for God. And, And so you can get discouraged with that. Maybe you're sitting on your couch, wherever you're taking this in, you can be discouraged at a lack of longing in your life. But what the words of that quote say is like, you can begin to just even long, God, I wish I was more longing for you. God, I wish I was more passionate for you. Uh, Maybe there was a time you recall that you were more passionate. Maybe it was in your younger days as a Christian, for many of us who've had that, that story or a journey with Jesus. Maybe there's a time in your life where you were on fire for God as maybe, and maybe that's not quite where you're at now. And so it's okay for you to say, God, I don't even have a longing, but I long for the longing. I, I, I desire the desiring. I hunger for the hunger. And I believe God will take that simple prayer and he will begin to answer it. I really will. And so may that be your prayer and desire, not just for now, but for this year ahead. And so I believe as we do that, 
that God will shift and do something in us. And so here's the flip side of it. If, if we want to see something, if we long to see something different in our lives, if you long to see something different in your family, if you long to see something different in your neighborhood, your city, if we long to see something different in our schools, our campuses, our city, if we long to see something different in in our nation, Canada, even the nations of the world, then it's not going to be by going about business as usual. It's going to need to take something different then. And it's going to need to take a beginning to long and hunger and pursue God in maybe a way that we haven't done in a while. And so our faith can be activated by desperation, not just crisis, but by desperation. And we can cultivate that now, not wait for the crisis, through longing for God. So the test of longing. What will it take to activate your faith, activate you hungering and going deeper, activate you getting up, hearing about Jesus, getting up, going to him, and getting before his face to petition him? Secondly, as I look at the official, as I look at the progression of just this this man's uh, desperate need and, and how his faith is being stirred and tested and challenged by Jesus himself, the next test I look at is the test of living. What will be enough for our faith? Word or sign, word versus sign. Verse 50 says, Jesus, after he's petitioned Jesus, it says what Jesus responds to him. It says, go, your son will live. It says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, two things about this. First thing is, note that Jesus doesn't answer the official's request the way that the official asked it, right? What was he asking? He's asking, Jesus, come with me. Come with me and let's go to my son and then you can be at my son's bed and you would physically heal him. And Jesus doesn't answer him the way that he expects. Jesus says, no, my word's enough. And so Jesus' word's enough to perform the miracle, but will Jesus' words be enough for the official? And remarkably, they are. They're enough for this official to say, okay, great. Now, long-distance miracles were rare in that time, as they are maybe in our time. It's, it's much more conceivable to think of, of having a miracle take place when you're present and the miracle worker is present with you. And so it kind of takes incredible faith for this official to just say, Okay, you said it. I'm, I'm, I'm going back. I'm going back. And so it's really helpful for us, firstly, to recognize that Jesus doesn't always answer our request the way that we maybe envision him answering or the way that we think it should be answered. And that's actually really good for us. Maybe not on the moment. I know I'm with you. It'd be kind of really nice if Jesus would just fit into my paradigm, wouldn't it? be really nice if he would just work within how I see things, right? But so often Jesus doesn't do that. And it's really good. And you know why it's really good? Because it's, it, it cultivates us putting a faith, not on a formula, not on a step-by-step pattern. This is how Jesus will always operate and always answer in prayer. But it puts our faith in the person of Jesus. Jesus, I trust you to answer in the way that's best for me in this situation. That's really true faith right there. Not saying, Jesus, I trust that you will answer in the way that I expect you to answer. And I think Jesus just loves to blow up our boxes sometimes, blow up our paradigms. So we're not putting our, our faith in a formulaic method or, or formula or a way of doing things, but we're, he's cultivating us to put faith and trust ultimately in himself. Um, and so the second thing is, though, this is an incredible test of the official's face, uh, faith. Sorry, w- Will he take Jesus at his word and, and Definitely Jesus is testing this official's faith. Now, there's a bigger context to this, and I want to peel back and for you to understand the significance of why Jesus maybe harshly uh, speaks to the, or re- kind of rebukes, not just the, um, the official's faith, but the, 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 the audience that's around him. I want to peel back a, a couple of verses to, to kind of 
for you and I to get the significance of what Jesus is doing with this official. In verse 48, it says that uh, Jesus spoke to the official, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, that you that we have is actually in the plural. And uh, my, my U.S. friends in the South, they say that there's a, it'd be a great translation that they've brought out all the times in the New Testament. A lot of times we see the you, we think singular or individual. Most of the times it's in the plural. And so in a way, you could read this in the Southern version, unless y'all, you all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. And so he's not just rebuking and not just speaking to the official, but he knows as the Galilean audience. He knows that these are people who are very familiar with Jesus. They're people who knew about Jesus as he was growing up, as he began to do his signs. These are people that Jesus is also beginning to speak to. And so the context of why he's addressing them starts a couple of chapters before. And so stick with me here a little bit. We're going to do a quick see what's going on here. But two chapters earlier, back in Cana, for the first miracle, if you missed last week's sermon, we touched on that, Jesus turning water into wine. It says that people believed the sign of him turning water into wine. And so it says that the disciples believed in him because they saw the sign, they saw the miracle. Um, then Jesus goes from there and he goes down to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it says many people saw his signs and believed in him. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew what people were like. <laughs> I love that. He knew what people were like. I know what you like. I know you're fickle. I know you. it's like it's quite a... Quite a humorous verse, actually. I'm glad Luke also gets a bit of enjoyment out of there behind the camera. And so in contrast, now he goes back to Galilee. And on his way back to Galilee, he encounters the Samaritan town, the Samaritan woman. And they put their faith in him because many more believed because of his word. Now, this is a town. If anyone should believe, it's his people, it's his own people, the Jewish people. But it says that they really believed him because of the signs they saw, the miraculous things that were happening in Cana as he goes to Jerusalem. He goes to the Samaritan town, these outcasts shunned by the Jewish people, and they don't need the sign. They just believe because of what they've heard. And so that's remarkable. And so now, full circle, now we come back to where we are in this story. Jesus has returned to Galilee, his neighborhood, his neck of the woods. And people are welcoming, welcoming him, but John presents their welcome with somewhat of a bit of a suspicion. And so in verse 45, it says, when Jesus came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Why? Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's really a rebuke. Now, signs are helpful. Right? A miracle in front of your eyes. It's hard to deny that. It's hard to, it kind of defies our rational mind. So it's not to say that signs are, they're very helpful in, in cultivating faith. But if it's all we look to, it's, if that's all we live by, to see the signs, not the words, it's a very immature faith. And honestly, it's a faith that won't last you because you'll have to go from one sign to one sign, one sign. And so Jesus is really commending people who don't just believe because they see the miracle, see the sign, but they believe because they see who they hear and believe what Jesus said is true. They recognize something in his word and in his being that's true, that's worthy of their belief and their faith in him. And so he rebukes them. And in doing so, he's also challenging us to examine our faith. Is Jesus' word enough for you and me? Um, and so, remarkably, that official believed Jesus, believed his word, and went on his way. Now, if all this reminds you of something else, it should remind you of an encounter that Jesus has with one of his disciples called Thomas. 
fast forward to the last chapter of the book of John, and it talks about this encounter after Jesus is resurrected. And uh, let me just read the verse. You won't have it up before you, but verse 29, chapter 20, Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Right? Again, signs, the physical, the concrete. Rationally, I can see you. I can see the miracle. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's you and me. That's countless billions of Christians throughout the ages who've gone on. We haven't physically seen Jesus, but we've placed our faith. We've heard and we believe it's true and placed our faith. And many of us are staking a lot on that, uh, that he is true, uh, not just a word, but in who he is. And so, again, this is, this is not blind faith. This is not a plea to accept what's going on against reason. Reason has its place, fact-based. It's, it's not blind faith. But it is an invitation to discover a faith that goes beyond reason, that goes beyond all the things that we can manage, all the paradigms that we have. And so the example of Thomas really is an encouragement to the skeptic in all of us. And that Jesus has uh, tremendous patience for our wrestling sometimes with our doubt. But faith truly says Jesus' word is enough and trusts and obeys upon just that word. You know, seeing is believing. Well, really true faith is believing is seeing. You know, Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the substance of things hopeful, the conviction or evidence of things not seen. And so we see the test of living. How is this official going to live? How are we going to live? Are we going to wait for the sign to um, have, is that going to be enough for our faith? Or is Jesus' word going to be, is scripture going to be enough for our faith? And then lastly, as I see here the progression of his faith, and I see the progression of our faith going not just from um, longing and, and living, but the test of looking. And what are we ultimately wanting from Jesus? Are we wanting Jesus' power and his signs and his miracles? Or do we really want Jesus himself? Verse 53 tells us, that the, the official's faith grew to a point where it was just beyond what Jesus could do for him. It says, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. And so there's, there's, there's a knowing, there's, a, there's an experience of seeing Jesus being true. There's an experience of his grace that's fundamental to our belief in Jesus. It's just not a cognitive belief. Oh, I believe in God. That's, that's, it's a, that's the base level. I mean, demons believe in God. It's like the base level. It's, it's an experiential now. It's not just a belief here, but it's a trusting in. And it says that he himself and all his household believed, not just the word, but now he believed Jesus. You are true. I believe in you. And so we may come to Jesus wanting something from him like this official. We may be in a desperate situation, a crisis that puts us before God in a helpless situation, crying out, and that's okay. Rather go there than elsewhere, right? But ultimately, true faith in Jesus is to want him, not just what he can do for me in the moment, not just his power, but his person. And so the official in his household came to know and believe in Jesus his person, not just his word or his miracle. And so for John, believe is a, is a word, if you read his gospel, is thrown out so many times because he told us his purpose. He's warning to us to believe in Jesus and in believing have the life. And so his belief is, is multi, it's, it's multifaceted. At least if what I can see, belief in Jesus for John is progressive. It goes from a place of considering him to be true 
right? Maybe that's the cognitive. I think there's merit to this Jesus. No one could say the things he said and either be a liar or a lunatic and do some of the things he did. So there's some truth to it, but it needs to progress from truth to a trust. So truth can enter here, but trust then becomes something of the heart. And trust really then means uh, a confidence in who Jesus is that leads us to commit our lives, all of our lives, all aspects of our lives fully to him. And so belief for John ultimately is a relational term that moves through the stages. It's important that we have substantive things to base our belief on. So I'm not dismissing the cognitive, but it's important for you and I to realize that belief isn't just like, I believe in Jesus, or I believe it's got to transform that the way we entrust ourselves, commit ourselves to Jesus. That's relationship. Belief for John is a relational term. I love what Oswald Chambers says about this in terms of, of, of just the relational dynamic that faith truly holds for us. And he says, faith never knows where it is being led, but it loves and knows the one who is leading. I love that. And I think as we look out to 2023, there are many things we don't know. Just like we were prophesying and calling 2020 the year of perfect vision, right? Remember all those great words you got in January of 2020? And, um, and I'm, not being, I'm not being sarcastic and negative about having a, a positive outlook for a year, but just realize you have to temper that a lot with just it's very limited what you and I can know. And so we don't want to put our faith fully in what I believe this year is going to be my best year yet. No, I put my faith in, I believe Jesus is going to be best for me this year yet. I believe that I'm going to encounter Jesus in a way never before. I believe that I'm going to seek him and I'm going to find him. I'm going to ask and I'm going to receive. I'm going to knock and the door is going to be open like never before. Why? Because I'm looking to Jesus, not necessarily the circumstances, which as you and I know can be up and down as the day goes by. Incredible uncertainty still lies in our head. Maybe life is is a life of uncertainty. Maybe we've just got to get comfortable with that. Maybe all our science and technology has has built up an apathy towards how unstable, how uncertain life really actually is. That's more normative. And so I want to encourage you, I want to encourage me that we would just not only see truth in Jesus and his words, but come to really trust that as our ultimate reality. And that that would encourage us to grow in confidence and commitment to really entrust our entire lives to him. You know, the posture of longing and living and looking to Jesus isn't just the posture if you're looking for a miracle or looking for some level of super faith. It really is the posture of life in Christ. It's longing for him. It's living out the truth of his word, uh, obeying him, and it's looking ultimately to him. You know, faith in Jesus is not a formula. It's not a certain belief or doctrines I need to believe per se. And it's definitely not just a prayer you pray. It's an ever-growing trust, an ever-growing relationship of confidence and trust in Jesus that leads us to entrust our lives more fully to him, all aspects of our lives. And when we experience that relationship, as John says, we experience the life that he came to give us in him. And so I want to pray for you today. I want to pray for us. I want to pray for this year that we truly would come to believe in Jesus and by believing would experience the life that's in him. And so, Father, I thank you for all who are watching, all who are hearing this, Lord, that, God, we would truly come to a place where our belief, our faith would be in the firm foundation of Jesus, the truth of who you are, Jesus.
and what you've come to offer us. And so I pray for all watching that they would encounter the life, maybe for the first time, maybe just a renewal of the life we know that you promise us, Jesus, wherever we may find ourselves in the journey and spectrum of faith, where today we encounter, uh, like, this, like this official, the, the truth of who you are, Jesus, and be changed and transformed by that. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org. 